Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. We're back in the studio with Derek Baker, president and CEO of Dickerson Baker and Associates. Hey, Derek, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah, it's, it's always good to have you here. We've had some great conversations in the past. And before we get into the topic for the day, take a minute to remind our listeners a little bit more about who you are and about who Dickerson Baker and Associates are and, and what you guys do. Absolutely. We're a nonprofit consulting firm. We work uh, uh, principally in the area of, uh, of fundraising and advancement. Uh, we help uh, organizations, uh, principally faith-based, but not exclusively, uh, with a variety of different uh, types of services. Capital campaigns is a big one. Um, annual fund kind of growth and development, annual fund planning and and helping to helping folks to uh, improve their overall uh, fundraising outcomes. Um, we're not an agency, we're a consulting firm. So we, we operate in a little bit of a different space, but uh, uh, partner with a lot of different agencies and have had opportunity to work with, with you, Andrew, on, on a couple of occasions and, and Roy as well. Awesome. So um, we're gonna talk today about a, a new study that you guys have published recently. And it's titled Help Wanted, a National Study of Staffing Challenges in Nonprofit Fundraising. And I think we all know that in, in this sector, there's huge issues and challenges uh, with staffing, but now it's, it's exciting that you've actually got the data to back up what, you know, what I think the, you know, the narrative has been across the sector and even to debunk some myths, it sounds like, uh, in that area. So let, let's jump into that. You know, the, the first thing that I thought was interesting in your, your research is, is that you make the point that there's a, a severe shortage of qualified fundraisers in the marketplace. And you know, I've been to enough AFP mixers and different things, and I feel like I always see, you know, in, in those rooms, you know, if there's 25 people, there's 24 of them who are looking for a job, right? But the, the interesting point that I thought you made is, is that clarification of qualified fundraisers. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and what you found in that area. Well, it's it's one of the things I think that uh, we uncovered in the in, in in the study in the study was there is some disparity between uh, categories of fundraisers. I, you know, one of the myths that uh, I think we were somewhat surprised to see we we've all heard that statement. You know, pe- people kind of throw it around uh, a lot in terms of this eighteen month or fifteen month tenure for fundraising professionals. And we've experienced it. We've all experienced high turnover. Um, what we found in this study was that's simply a myth. The average tenure for uh, fundraising professionals of the, of the folks that we, we, you know, we, we talked to in the study, and we had over a thousand uh, participants in the study. So it's, the study has a high level of confidence. But you know, there's a subset of about 25% of Kind of people in the industry that seem to be jumping around, and 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 I think they have a hard time landing. Uh, you know, when we looked at why do people leave, uh, there was also a subset of about twenty five percent who leave a job because of performance issues or because of other issues. So I think what's happening is is there are 
you know, there is no real barrier of entry, right, to getting into this business. There's no formal training. There's nothing, you know, so people kind of, they kind of get into this business surreptitiously because somebody maybe asked them to do it or somebody thought they could do it and they, they can muddle through and bump around a little bit. Um, but there's, there is a category of those folks. And I think we've all worked with them and, you know, sometimes you don't know they're in that category until you work with them for a little while. Uh, but, uh, but actual qualified fundraisers and by qualified, what we're talking about by qualified fundraisers is not just the experience because you can have a qualified fundraiser who's never done fundraising before, you know, by qualified, we're talking about somebody who has the appropriate giftedness to do the job, who has the kind of the personalities and skills uh, to succeed in fundraising. And, you know, in, in our, you know, in our search work, we're also looking for somebody who has a prior track record of performance in doing something similar or in actual fundraising itself. That's kind of how we would, how we would term qualified. And those folks, you know, they're hard to come by today. They, they, they tend to stick in their jobs. The average tenure for qualified fundraisers was five years. And, uh, and there's not a lot of new ones kind of coming into the industry. We don't have a good path to train these folks, to recruit them, to, uh, to, to develop new talent. And so what you've got is you've got a small group of people that hop around, right? The, the job hoppers that go from place to place to place. You have another group of people that kind of stick and you have a whole lot of people kind of fighting for, uh, fighting for that staff. Wow. You know, Derek, you, you helped us when I was at Mercy Ships to, to kind of change uh, uh, the scenario there. They, uh, you know, they had a small major gift staff. Um, you know, we hired about 16 people and kept about a dozen of them, but not everybody made it. Um, there weren't many job hoppers in that bunch, um, um, but, but, but we lost a few. It's interesting, though, that those job hoppers, they do tend to circulate their resumes uh, every time I post an opening, I'm just amazed at the number of people who unashamedly, you know, list job after job after job, you know, staying at a, at a place much less than 18 months. And they they just move from charity to charity. Um, so, I, you know, it, it's just it, it was surprising to me to see this. But then when I thought about the people that we've hired together um, and and the and the and the folks that that you know, I've trained and, 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 and worked with, they do stay a lot longer than 18 months. And so it, it, it makes sense when you put it in context. It's just the surface of all the resume circulating. And when you post a job, um, uh, and I've posted openings um, for a couple of different nonprofits um, uh, and, and seen even the same resume circulating through. Um, so it's, it, it, it was very surprising to me. Yeah, we we see that in our executive search practice. As you as you know, we we uh, we have a division of our company that specifically does executive search and recruitment for fundraising positions. And um, you know, it just seems like when we post a job out there, and we post a number of jobs, there's there's a lot of those same people that just keep throwing their resume in the mix. You know, time after time, and oh, they had another job that, oh, they're somewhere else now, but they're still applying for, you know, for every, right. every job that comes through. One of the, you know, in the study, one of the things that we, we also um, identified was just that, you know, I think it, it's really kind of a, a, an obvious solution, but as an industry, I think that we have to become much more um, uh, deliberate. And I think we just have to improve our hiring practices. And this is something that, 
that that I've seen time and time again, you know, I because we've we've worked in this industry for a long time, right? We we've been in the in the recruitment industry. We've we've interviewed a lot of folks. We've looked at a lot of candidates. It's not that big of a pool, right? So a lot of folks have crossed our paths, and we've kind of done kind of the the digs the you know the digs into some of the. Their background. I can remember uh, one organization that uh, that that we did some consulting with, and they had a guy on their staff. He was a major gift officer, and uh, working in I think he, I think he had maybe Dallas somewhere, Dallas region or somewhere down in Texas. He had a region down in Texas. Well, he was also at the same time working full time for his dad's business. Okay. So he was holding two full-time jobs, one working for his dad in his dad's business. And he was working full-time for this organization that, that, that he was supposed to be doing major gift fundraising for, but he had a handful of key donors that he knew and, and knew well that kind of kept his numbers up. Right. But he was actually not putting in hardly any time into, into his major gift work, but pulling a full-time salary. Nobody was really paying attention because, you know, the, the, you know, a lot of those, you know, he had a hand, he had a handful of good donors in his portfolio that he was making those base numbers and, you know, they clued in at some point and they fired him. Okay. Well, another colleague of mine hires this guy <laughs> and, and, and I'm, Uh-oh. I won't say her name, but I'm like, uh, let's just call her Emily. <laughs> like Emily, <laughs> if you had just called me, you know, I worked with this other organization. I could have saved you a bunch of grief, right? Because she, she ended up firing him too, but it's just, you know, the, 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 you, it just you, know you, you touch on an interesting topic here, Derek, because I've seen in the last uh, year, 14 months with this COVID phenomenon and people working at home more um, that they tend to have more time on their hands and they do tend to look at more opportunities. Um, um, you know, I can't, um, it, it, it's nothing scientific like the, like the study you guys have completed, but uh, I think you've touched on something that, that is uh, more prevalent in the industry than we like to acknowledge, uh, that there are especially development professionals who are frontline fundraisers who are out in the community quite a bit, talking to a lot of business people quite a bit, um, they do tend to dabble in things outside of their full-time job. Yeah. You know, I, it's so funny you say that because I, in the last 60 days, I was surprised. I've seen three frontline fundraisers, all major gift officers, announced that they also were launching a real estate career. Not, not transitioning into a real estate career, but, you know, running that business side by side alongside their you know, uh, major gift officer, or even in one case, chief development officer role. And, and, you know, so to your point, Derek, like you, you can't do both of those jobs well, you right. know, to, to the level that you've committed probably to either employer. Right. Um, and I come back to like, is that a compensation problem in the industry? Are people just chasing dollars because they can't make ends meet? Is it, you know, is it part of a long-term transition do we just hire flighty people? Like, I, I don't know what the answer is there. And I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but at the same time, like, I think this is a, a real problem. Yeah. I, I think it's been a problem for a long time, Derek. I mean, it, I think compensation has a big part of it. Um, you know, nonprofits think that major gift officers um, are at a certain level. It doesn't matter how much money they produce for the organization. They can't, can't make more than that. 
So for many development officers, the biggest pay raise they ever get is the first day of their new job. Thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. That that's compensation came out as a big uh, issue in this study. It was it was the number one reason uh, why people left. You know, and 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 one of the things I think one of the solutions to kind of the turnover problem uh, that does exist, by the way, one of the things that we found in the study that was a little bit of a surprise is that the turnover problem is not nearly as big as we kind of assume it to be in the industry. But it was also clear that turnover is still a big problem. You know, there's it's you know, it, it, we're still we still have too high a level of turnover in, you know, amongst our fundraising staff in the industry. And when we pressed into why people left their job, right, what what were the principal reasons why people left the, the compensation issue was was at the top of the list. Um, other issues, you know, performance was down. Right down further on the list, but of course that that was also that about twenty five percent of folks who, you know, again might be underperforming, but a lot of the times what's what's happening is, um, you know, folks are just you know nonprofit organizations they they're not keeping up with market trends. So when you have a situation where um, one of the most important assets that you right need in fundraising is human assets. And when there's a scarcity of those human assets, the good ones are right. The value is going to go up. It's basic economics. And uh, if 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 you have a good fundraiser in place and they're going to stick a while, right? The and then you're not if you're not increasing their compensation to keep up with the market, which the vast majority of nonprofits are not doing, you're forcing them after a certain period of time because the gap just increases. You're forcing them to, to begin looking, right? I had a conversation with a with a fellow who runs a a, a, a child uh, uh, welfare organization here in North Carolina. You would know him, Roy. Uh, he, uh, he, I think he, uh, you, I'm pretty sure you've crossed paths with him. Uh, but uh, it, you know, he he, he kind of told me one time. He said, you know, I, I I have a simple philosophy when it comes to to my staff, particularly my fundraising staff. If if they're really good, I make sure they're paid more than anybody else is going to pay them because I don't even want them looking because as soon as they start to look right that can that can set up a whole lot of different things in, in the mind you know and and you, you know how that goes right when it's like the when you when you first entertain that thought maybe I should just look what's out there well maybe I'll just send them an email and then all of a sudden you're in this process and all of a sudden you've opened up in your mind that it's maybe time to go and 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 that's like opening the Pandora's box and you know it Surprise, surprise, you know, you find out that there's a lot more money out there or whatever. But if you're if you're pretty content, if you're getting paid well, if you have good, the, the lesson from that is if you have good staff in place, compensate them in accordance with the value they're bringing to your organization and keep track of, you know, the salary surveys and what the marketplace is doing, because it's going to cost you more to find somebody like them or better than them or as good as them. And chances are you're going to struggle and it's going to be expensive. And then they've got to learn the job all over again. So just pay your folks, folks, what they, you know, what the, what their, what their market compensation is. Talk to me about how rapid a, the, the compensation has to be scaled. Derek, what do you, what do you see um, in the industry? I mean, you've got a, um, a scenario where a major gift officer has done a good job. Um, uh, you know, they're they're underpaid. Um, um, 
in, in their sector of the industry. Um, I mean, you know, what I tend to see and see board, see uh, even um, executive directors, C-suite executives who want to pay their major gift officers more, and then they get these board struggles saying, oh, we can only do a 3% raise. Um, um, no, there's no way we could increase their compensation 10%. Um, you know, and 10% only gets them halfway where they need to be. Um, um, what are some of the struggles the industry is wrestling with there? Yeah, I mean, money is short in every nonprofit, right? And we've been through some periods where money was particularly short, but, you know, money's always going to be short. <laughs> um, the, 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 one of the things that I say all the time to boards and to CEOs is almost every other employee in your organization, I don't care if you have 10,000 employees or 10 employees, but almost every other employee in your organization is an, is an expense. Your fundraisers are an investment, okay? And so you can't you can't look at them the same way because the, the, they multiply, right? They multiply revenue. Whereas if you add, you know, staff or whatever, right? It's a big difference. You, you there, you know, money oftentimes is kind of the lifeblood that drives, right? The advancement of mission that, that, that lets everybody else do what they need to do. So uh, if I'm sitting in 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 the CEO seat, I want to invest in the machine that's going to generate the revenue that's going to allow me to pay all my other people well, right? And it, 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 it's regardless if you get all of your funding from, from philanthropy or not, you know, uh, there's, you know, if you're, let's say, let's say you're in the healthcare industry. My wife's a physician. She's in the healthcare industry. Well, the, the margins are slipping and slipping and there's less money available and everybody's trying to, right? And so every, everything's, everything's tightening up. The importance of the, the, the fundraising revenue that you can, that you can bring in, and it, you know, organization like Eckerd, Roy, right? That, you know, even though, you know, a, a healthy chunk of, of that revenue comes from, right, third party or other sources, uh, the fundraising revenue really helps you do your mission in a way that you couldn't otherwise do without it. And so the more of that you can raise, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what, what the organization is, you need the revenue and the way to drive the revenue is with good people in the fundraising seats. Yeah, so what you're saying, you almost have to break out a special category, especially for your frontline fundraisers compared to uh, support staff or even program staff. You, you got to look at them differently. Right. And I think, uh, you know, I, when I have encountered uh, any struggles from board members about compensation for fundraisers, it's related to fundraisers that aren't really performing at expectation. Uh, I, I don't often see that if the, if the fundraising team is hitting their numbers and exceeding their numbers and everybody's like, wow, this is great. You know, <laughs> we can hire more here. We can do more there. You know, uh, generally it's like, let's do what we need to do to keep those folks, you know? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think there are a couple of organizations, I'm not gonna name them, but all three of us have probably worked with them in the past where, where you know, the, the opposite is even true where they, they do have frontline fundraisers who have nailed it, right? And really gone above and beyond. And, and you know, I, I remember even challenging one of these CEOs in the last couple of years and saying, you got to pay that person more. Like he's going to walk out the door. And the response was, well, if I pay them more, they'd be more highly compensated than I am. Right. Um, and and this, there's this sort of like bristling reaction, uh, particularly in the social service space, right? Where everybody's compensation is probably below market. 
And there's this like, well, wait a minute, we, we can't pay a fundraiser more than we pay a CEO. Uh, but then I think about it, like in the commercial side of the world, I know plenty of salespeople who, who make as much, if not more, than C-suite executives in, in for-profit companies. And, and everyone's happy to compensate them more because the more highly compensated they are, it's because they're driving more revenue through the door. You know, so I, I think there's also that side of the equation where boards and CEOs struggle with like, well, wait a minute, that imbalances the comp at the C-suite. And how do we how do we even think through that? You know, right. Yeah, there's all kinds of, I think, issues that come up with that. We, we work with schools sometimes and hiring a development director recently had 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 a conversation with a, you know, with with the head of school who who basically was like, I, I just can't I just can't pay a development director more than I pay my teachers because my teachers are the highest value. And I said, listen, they're a different category of job. You look at any salary survey, right? You, you know, you can't pay your teachers what you pay your head of school. And, but each one has a, you know, you've got to stay competitive in the market. And if, you know, you've got to, you've got to pay your teachers competitively so that they, you're going to, can, can recruit good teachers and keep them, but you've got to do the same thing with fundraising staff. And if you set yourself an artificial ceiling, you're making your job even tougher in what is already a very tough environment to, to find and recruit and keep staff. Yeah. So I want to transition for a second. One of the things in, in your study that, that I was interested in is the, the high percentage of fundraisers that said that they changed their job for career or personal development. And, you know, that got me thinking, um, you know, when, when Roy and I were at Rough Street together, we had a chief people officer named Stacey Berger, who's phenomenal. She came from World Vision. One of the things she taught us was this mantra of uh, hire smarter, train better, fire faster, right? And that train better piece, right? That, that was a key component of, of our talent retention strategy. Uh, in the agency, and how how do we provide training and equip people to grow and and you know really double down on that so we can keep our best people? I feel like that training piece is so often overlooked as oh my gosh, it's just another cost, right? In the nonprofit sector, what did what have you seen in that area, and how big of an issue is it? I think it's a very real issue. Um, you know, when you look at the characteristics of what makes a good fundraiser, when you look at you know personality assessments and things like that one of the things that makes a good fundraiser is that they tend to be change agents they're right they're 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 not they're not stick in the mud people they tend to be the ones that are driving new a lot of new ideas they tend to be somewhat entrepreneurial they're looking for growth they're always on the looking for ways to 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 do things you know new and different ways and and so partly if they're just kind of stuck in a rut and they're not learning from others so part of professional development is I want to continue to learn. I want to continue to grow. I, I love what I do, you know, but I don't do everything the same way today that I did three years ago. We're even in our company at Dickerson Baker, we're constantly looking to improve and build upon, right? And, you know, we've got this foundation of kind of standards and practices that you build over years and years. You know, we've been in business 35 years, but you're always looking to build kind of new ideas and new approaches on top of that. And and so just that's that in and of itself, I think, you know, uh, uh, folks will feel like they're falling behind if they're not learning that, if they're not out there. I think there's uh, another advantage of professional development is it's the networking with your peers, you know, um, you know, kind of sharing best practices together. 
Uh, it's not just sitting sitting on a webinar or something like that. You know, the, part of what happens is networking with peers and, and getting out and, and talking through what's happening in other places. And so I think those 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 are all factors. And uh, but professional development. The other thing, typically fundraisers don't have a lot of upward right. They don't have a lot of upward potential in the organization where they are. Maybe they have their eye on, hey, if the development <laughs> chief development officer leaves, I maybe get that seat. But, you know, that t- typically if somebody uh, is looking, if you have a younger person or somebody is looking for some upward potential career wise, uh, they're either looking for a larger organization or more responsibility. And, you know, you're going to essentially advance that you're going to accelerate their their departure if you're not giving them at least some of that growth opportunity internally. Um, if, you know, if you've got a young, ambitious person and you're a small organization, relatively small organization, and they're already in the director of development job and, right, where else are they going to go? They're, you know, you can give them more responsibility internally. You can get them involved in, in, in a few things. You can make sure you're giving, you can give them more of a voice in some of the professional leadership and executive leadership. Um, you can invest in their professional development. You can pay them more, but if they ultimately really want to try their right to, to try to you know apply their craft in a in a bigger shop or lead a bigger team, they're going to go. and And I think it's okay, right? Um, you know, you work with them, you work with that individual. I always say to my staff, listen, if I don't expect everybody to be here for their lifetime. Most people, I mean, I, I've got a few lifers in my company, right? <laughs> but but not often, not many, right? Uh, most people are here for a season, right? Whatever that season is. And I say to my folks all the time, when you feel like there's a change of season coming for you, don't be afraid to tell me about it because I will help you make that next step, right? Let's do it together. Right. That helps me because I can plan the transition. Right. And it helps them because I can really kind of help them transition. Right. It's not it doesn't get sideways. You know, I think I think that's flipping the script a little bit of, oh, I'm going to wait till the last minute to tell my employer that I'm even thinking about leaving. And it kind of depends on the employer. But but honestly, if 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 one of my team members is feeling like, hey, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to try my hand at something or other. Right. I've got, some, I got I've had people on my staff. They're like, you know, I've never been a CEO in my career and I'd really like to do that. You know, if the opportunity comes open. Right. If if, if kind of God leads that way or that opportunity comes open and I'm, I, I'm like, oh, bless it. Just keep me posted when the time comes. But in the meantime. Right. Um, nose down, tail up. <laughs> well, talk to me. Uh, Andrew mentioned. Um, about training and you commented on that, um, you know, when it is, what do you normally see um, with a new hire, Derek? Um, how long do you give them to get their legs under them? Um, and, and at what point, if they're not doing it, um, do you start discussing next steps? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question, Roy. I, you know, one of the things that, that uh, often happens to us as a consulting firm is, you know, a CEO will oftentimes ring my phone or they'll ring the phone of one of our senior consultants and just kind of kind of dance around the edges a little bit and then finally get to the, to the situation where he or she says, I just don't think my right CDO or DD or whoever is performing, right? What, what do I do? 
And I want to be very careful, you know, not to say anything rash at that point, because first of all, I'll tell you, um, these are such complex situations and it's so easy to come in there with kind of a first impression. And I've learned in doing this, you know, consulting for 20 years, oftentimes the, the first impression is wrong. You can get a, a, a negative first impression, be totally wrong. You can get a really positive first impression and be really wrong, right? Oftentimes the first impressions are wrong. Are wrong. And as an outsider coming in and looking at it, you know, it, it, you're only getting a, a small picture and you're only getting it through the lens of whoever is showing you the picture. <laughs> so, so I want to make sure that, that we're going to come in. So I'll say to those folks, I'll say, listen, what we're, you know, what, what, here's what we can do. We'll come in and do some due diligence and dig a little, right. We're, we can tinker underneath the hood a little bit. We're going to pull some data. We're going to look at, you know, kind of assess the current situation. And then we're going to work with you to put together a plan. And that plan is going to be very specific, right? These are the things that need to be done. And we're not going to, we're not going to do that on top of, right? The chief development officer or the, or the fundraising team. We're going to do that collaboratively with the fundraising team, but we're going to facilitate, facilitate it and lead it. You're going to be part of that. And we're going to come away from this process with a set of objectives, right? And a set of work plans that are pretty specific for how we want to achieve our goals. And now we start working those work plans. And now that we have the established work plans and assuming that you're giving the folks the resources and the tools to do, right? Because the, the plan's got to say, that's going to require this, it's going to require that, you know, you're going to need to do this, going to need to do that. But if somebody is failing to perform, right, the, the, whatever the work plan is, now we, now we can see it, right? Now, now it's no longer subjective. Now it's pretty objective, right? We've worked out together what the objectives are, what the goals are, what the activities will be. And if those activities aren't, aren't being done, right? That's one thing. But if the activities are being done and they're not leading to results, that's another thing, right? I mean, because the reality is this business is as much art as science. And so, you know, if if in fact, for instance, if it's a fund, fundraising position, you, you can go out on meetings after meetings after meetings and you're going, you know, just the sheer activity of seeing people is going to lead to an increase in giving, right? But in and of itself, it's, you know, that's not going to get you right to, to the lift that you would otherwise get if you were doing it artfully and we're good at the art of the ask and things like that but i, I want to emphasize that the sheer activities themselves will generate results right you just you just go about a disciplined right cadence of the types of activities that are going to drive giving it's like you know um jerry uh oh, uh one of my early trainers, uh, who wrote the book, Art, Art of the Ask? Gerald Panis. Gerald Panis, thank you, thanks. <laughs> Your editor might need to edit that little bit there, uh, <laughs> Andrew, but but it's like it's like Jerry Panis you know, used to say, there is no such thing as a bad ask. The bad ask is the only ask that didn't get made. And so, you know, obviously an artful ask is better than a bad ask, but a bad ask is still better than a no ask is going to yield a higher, right? But for me, Roy, it's about, hey, get, determine what the objectives are, determine what activities are going to drive completion of those objectives, and then measure and track. And if the, if the individual is doing the objectives and are yielding the anticipated results, great. If they're doing the objectives and it's not yielding the results, you got to kind of look at, well, maybe they're not a good fit for this work 
or are there outside factors? What, you know, try to identify the outside factors. If they're just not doing the activities, then you got to, that's a big problem in and of itself. Good input. So, Derek, one of the things with respect to that whole process, I was surprised in your study to see that data point that said something like, you know, only 15% of fundraisers said that they thought that their organization would want to hire them back or be happy to have them back, something like that. Now that, that sounds to me like an organization and an employee got to the point where they said, wow, this isn't working at all. You know, there's, there's a key friction point here and we're going to walk away. Um, and, and, and it suggests that there weren't those kind of ongoing discussions and dialogue happening and, and sort of, you know, iterative expectation setting on both sides. Am I, Am I misreading that, or is that sort of what you all found? You know, it, it, in our experience, Andrew, the number one thing that leads to, uh, and that, that statistic that you mentioned there was specifically the chief development officer. Okay. Right? That, that, was, that was very specific to the chief development officer. And uh, the, the, the reality is the, the, the event that tends to drive the most departures of chief development officers is a transition in the chief executive officer chair. Okay. Okay. And so um, that, that, that's, I think, a factor in the mix that's pretty significant. We see that all the time that when there, when there is a, right, when, when, when there is a new president and CEO come in, it's almost just a function of time before the, the chief development officer is going to move on because the, you know, when we're, when we're doing a search for a CDO um, that, you know, that rapport between that, between the CEO and the CDO is really critically important. One of the things that was interesting in this study, it's a little bit buried, I think uh, um, in the study was, was the importance of the CEO in fundraising. Um, it was kind of the third finding and it was, but it's, to me, it was a very interesting finding because those organizations that there was a clear correlation between the CEO's enjoyment and, and engagement in fundraising and the overall fundraising performance of the organization. And we see that in our consulting work all the time, right? Those organizations that, that if the CEO is not engaged and the board is not engaged, you know, they're, they're just never going to hit the, the kind of high, they're never going to get the real high value giving that's going to drive the best ROI and the best growth because you need the CEO and the, and the board at the table for those. But so, if you so let's pause for a second on that. Yeah. Describe, because I think there are probably a lot of fundraisers and maybe even CEOs listening going, yeah, that's not us, or CEOs going, holy crap, I don't want to get into this, right? Right. Um, what, what does ideal engagement or enjoyment look like? Does that mean they have to be actively asking? They just have to support the program? Like what, what does that look and feel like? No, they, they, they have to be actively involved. Um, I would say a few key things that, you know, I, I talk about, you know, CEOs that basically outsource fundraising to their fundraising department. Um, you know, culture is, is, is a huge, has a huge impact on your ability to fundraise. And if, if the CEO is kind of feeling like, hey, I've hired people to do that. They're just doing that. They're running the machine, right? And I don't have to worry about it because I don't like fundraising. I'm not comfortable with it. I don't, you know, and they don't get involved in it. They don't get involved in the planning for it, the setting of the objectives for it. If they're not personally engaging in it and spending their time in it, particularly for those higher value donors, 
Um, it's it's exceptionally hard to 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 get gifts. Typically, you know, for most organizations, it depends on the organization. The threshold is different for for different organizations, but but it's really hard to get for sure six or seven figure gifts without participation of, of of the CEO and board. And what you'll often see is that the board the board takes their cue from the CEO. If the CEO is involved, the board will be involved. If the CEO is not involved, the board will unlikely be involved. Mm. Um, there's exceptions to that rule, but that's that's fairly common. But but I think if you if you really look at it, organizations you know big gifts add up faster. It's one of my mantras, right? <laughs> and so uh, the, when when you do a kind of a, a, a top down chart of of somebody's macro giving, and you see how many gifts that they're getting, right? If we get a client, we're doing an assessment with a client. I want to see a breakdown of how many gifts and to, how much money is raised at each different segment of giving. And, and, and we call internally at Dickerson Baker, we call that top segment, which might be at $100,000 and up or $50,000 and up. Some organizations, you know, would be less or more than that. But that's kind of typical. We call it the president circle, right? Mm-hmm. Because those folks aren't likely going to give without some sort of engagement from the CEO. And, and, and that's really, if you want an organization that's really raising money efficiently, and it, you know that category of giving, that president circle category of giving, can be 30, 30 plus percent of total giving in the organization just from, you know, maybe a portfolio of twenty five or forty folks that he's working with, and that you know then on top of that, there's other responsibilities, right? Getting out in the community and networking and meeting people, and 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 hey, we need you know we need you to speak at this gathering, at this luncheon gathering. We need right. There's a lot of different different ways that that a board member, that a CEO can get involved, and so um, so that's essential. But the the relationship between the CEO and the CDO, uh, when a new CEO comes in, oftentimes that's when we right. That's when there, there's going to be oftentimes and there's a high likelihood that there's going to be an open CDO position there, and in that situation, so that kind of answers. I think that's a big factor in answering that question. Uh, another big factor, I think, also is is that sometimes people, you know, sometimes an organization kind of outgrows the capabilities of their of their leader, right? Um, you know, you may have somebody who really did a, did a good job taking it from here to there, but you know, oftentimes we see organizations where, oh, we're coming in maybe to do a CDO search for an organization, and people liked, they felt like the previous CDO did a good job, but just couldn't didn't have what it took to take it to the next level, struggled to, to break through that, that next level and needed somebody with more experience in a larger shop or something like that. We see that a lot in, in smaller organizations, actually, that, that, that the biggest organization that this particular CDO may have ever worked at may be the organization they're at. They may have been there a long time, but they've never had the opportunity to work outside that shop, right, and really learn some of the things, right, to, you know, to, to take it to the next level as the science improves, et cetera. There's so much that so much coming out all the time in fundraising, you know, yeah. digital yeah. side and, you know, there's so much, so much to learn all the time. That's an interesting perspective. I mean, one of the things that I've seen before that's been a challenge for organizations is, you know, and I think COVID sort of shined a bright light on this. And not that the 2008 financial crisis didn't, but I just don't feel like people maybe listened as much. Um, and that's the importance of actually having people in the seat who understand how to engage in relationship funding, right? 
because I, you know, Roy and I have done this so many times, walk into an organization and the, the chief fundraiser is someone who has an event background or who, who came out of direct response or, you know, uh, something that's not major in capital fundraising, right? And, and then you, you have a, a situation like the last two and a half, three years where, you know, people are shell-shocked and, and you know, the, the typical traditional tools aren't working the same way and organizations that are thriving are the ones that actually had viable relationships with major donors. You know, so to, to what extent is, is that piece, like sort of the, um, you know, the, the fit and alignment of not just maybe the, you know, this is the biggest shop they've ever been in, but they, they've maybe never done that kind of work before. How does that impact an organization's growth and that person's stability in that role? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Andrew. I think a lot of it depends on how kind of kind of the paradigm from which you operate. And what I see, and I think it's an unfortunate thing, but I think it's an unfortunate reality, is um, there is a tendency in the industry amongst chief development officers um, to want to build 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 their empire, right? They, they, they want the head count. They want the right how many folks, right? How many employees? How, so so there's a tendency to 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 drive towards that. That and part of it is, hey, they want a team to lead, they like leading a team, all of that sort of stuff. I, you know, I think that that's actually uh, unless you're really investing in 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 training and professional development at a high level, you know, you 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 guys know as much as I do that as as outside parties, right? As a consulting firm or as an agency or whatever else, you're constantly out there. Our whole business is about staying ahead of the curve. And 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 how many different organizations do you guys serve in right in, in your consulting practices or in your right? We we serve 120 to 130 different organizations every year. And 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 the opportunity of that is we're behind a lot of curtains, right? We're tinkering on a lot of a lot, a lot of hoods, anything that we see. Right, uh, that that's a good idea. We want to we, we want to build that into practice, and right, and and so um, if you have if you are just building your house, your your team in house, you kind of it's very hard to make those kind of changes or even know some of those changes. And so, I think changing the paradigm a little bit. I say to folks all the time: think about what you can outsource and what you can't outsource. Right, and. And be very open and look to outsource everything you can outsource because if you can outsource it, you should outsource it because you're getting the best. You know, you, you can pick the best, and yeah. and, and 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 it's always going to stay on. The, and then you, it's easy to it's easy to to scale or adjust or whatever. Um, but the one thing you cannot outsource is relationship. Relationship cannot be outsourced. So the whole relational engagement side, you know, is the side where you know keep you know that's that's where I think that the skills are most important for in-house and for in on staff and, and everything else, frankly, you, you can outsource it. Yeah. And probably get better talent, especially in today's day and age, because even some of the best talent in the business are tending to trend towards, right. Outs, right. I mean, we get, we get folks all the time. They're like, yeah, I, I really want to work at a consulting firm where I can, you know, use my expertise and right. They've, they've, they've kind of reached the point in their career where they've really succeeded and succeeded in their career. They want to help more organizations. Right. So, so, so there's this natural tendency for, 
um, for the for that top talent over time to gravitate towards consulting and 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 and, and, and you know that type of work. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we see this in our business with copywriters, right? I'll talk to a, a nonprofit organization. They'll say, oh, no, no, we have an in-house copywriter. We're very confident. He knows our business. She knows our work, whatever. And, and I'm thinking, well, we don't even have in-house copywriters. Right. The best copywriters don't want to be in-house, you know, and, and they can command um, a different experience and a different price, and, and but they deliver phenomenal work. Why would we, why would we try to in-house something where we can, to your point, we can go get the best, we can pay an incremental fee for it. It might be a you know slightly higher hourly rate than you would pay someone in-house, but the impact you get out of that is is substantially better. Um, but I do think there's this desire, you know, both to control cost, but also just to control headcount and butts and seats that often does a disservice to organizations and they don't even realize it. So true. So we're, we're coming up on, on the last few minutes here. I think, you know, I would love, we've talked a lot about, about a lot of different things. I, I would love if you could distill down, you know, two or three key insights and recommendations that you would, you would share with organizations coming out of this study and then also how, how people can get a copy of the study from you. Sounds good. I, what I would, what I would really emphasize at the beginning is, is, you know, hiring practices. Um, I think we can improve tr- dramatically uh, you know, the, the turnover problems and other, other issues. And I think performance will improve if people just do a little better job in their hiring practices. One of the things that we found, um, you know, in the, in the study was more than 50% said they kind of follow their gut instincts, you know, which is good. Right. But I, I kind of like the, the old Ronald Reaganism trust and verify. Right. And, you know, so in terms of just the basics of doing, you know, they kind of, you know, most organizations are just doing the basics. They're just asking for resume, a resume and a cover letter, three references, which most of them don't even call, right? The majority of them don't even call those references. Maybe they call one or they, they look at a testimonial letter, something like that. But you just cannot, you, this is, these are such important hires. And if you actually go about the business of, of going through the hire correctly, we just had somebody we're in discussions with, they got three positions they want us to recruit. And, and uh, you know, right, we're, we're, we're talking now, it's, it's uh, you know, early August. And he's like, I want these, I want these folks in place by no later than October 1, you know? And we're like, well, that gives us about 30 days, right? Because they have to give 30-day notice, right? right. And so uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, sure, I can, if you want to pay us the full fee and I just toss you some candidates, but, you know, our, our guarantee is not going to apply because, these are not necessarily going to be good candidates, but but the mindset, right? Then I'm going to find three folks, right? Three major gift people, have them on the job on a, in a, by by a certain date within 60 days. Forget about it, right? You've got to get you've got to go through the process because you know it's not about quantity; it's about quality. And verify and go through the proper process. So that's one of the that's one of the keys. The other key is to just you know really pay your folks well, right? Compensate your folks in, in accordance with kind of the value that they're bringing the organization. And I'm one of these folks where I'm, I'm, I'm about incentive compensation, right? As long as it doesn't break any ethical guidelines, we're not talking about, you know, um, you know, compensating fundraisers, you know, on commission or something like that, but you can set some, some objectives, right? And some of those objectives can be financial objectives. Some of them can be activity objectives. Some of them can be even donor satisfaction objectives, right? You can survey your donors. Why not? Um, but, but, you know, and, and based on, 
um, you know, based on those metrics to have some additional incentives built into compensation. Um, you know, so if there's a struggle between salary, right, and, you know, hey, we can't pay you that salary because of internal parity issues, then, the, you know, hey, can you be creative and add in some incentive compensation? Your base salary is within, right? But then the incentive compensation is based on how much money are they bringing to the table? Uh, you know, the, the, the last piece I would, I, would, I would touch on is that one thing that really became clear is that this is a really complex issue. And, and the issue is knitted into the culture of the organization. We work with so many different organizations. And uh, one of the things that, that, that we kind of we look for is what we would call a, a, a development-friendly culture. You know, it's, it's one of those things that's a little bit hard to put your finger on. What is a development-friendly culture? Those of us that have been fundraising a long time kind of know it, right? You're trying to get information. You're trying to get quotes. You're trying to get testimonials. You're trying to get people involved in, 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 in fundraising. Or, you know, will the CEO be involved in fundraising? Will the board be involved in fundraising? Um, you know, you're going to bring a donor in for a tour. Things going to be swept up and cleaned up. And, you know, the fact the fundraising involves everybody. It's not a solo act. It's not just the fundraising department. So from a, from a top level, right, to really succeed and build. Th these are the teams that stick, by the way. If you can build a team where you have a strong team of, of qualified people who really feel like they're making a big difference, but that they are integrated into the organization. That was one of the things that the study showed. They want a voice into the organization. They, they want to be integrated into the organization. They don't want to be a bunch of mercenaries out here raising money. Right. They, they want to be part of the mission. They want to be viewed as part of the of, of the organization. They're, they're, they're really, in a lot of ways, the ones that are making it possible. And so, um, you know, on the flip side of that, giving them the opportunity to experience the value of their work. Right. We oftentimes want to show the impact right, of, the, of, of a gift to the donor to make sure that, well, we should be doing the same thing with our fundraising team. Make sure our fundraising team is seeing the impact of their work. We, we take donors on tours and things like that. A lot of our fundraising staff don't even get to see firsthand what's, you know, what, what, what impact that their work is having on the lives of people. And so that's, those are all cultural pieces, you know? So uh, that, that to me is, you know, key hiring practices, compensation and benefits, and some of those tactical things, but also building a, a, a culture that is really uh, knitted, where development is knitted into your organizational culture. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's critical. Thank you for that. Um, how does how does somebody get a copy of the study? Best way is go to our website, dickersonbaker.com, and uh, uh, be in the resources section. Uh, but uh, should, they should be able to download it right there. All right. And uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you directly um, after listening to this conversation, what's the best way for that? Derek, D-E-R-R-I-C at dickersonbaker.com. Awesome. Hey, man, thanks again for being here. Thanks for sharing the study with us. All right. Thanks, thanks guys. Enjoy it. Talk to you later. Bye. Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.